Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. morning we're going to be in Philippians 1, finishing up the chapter, starting with verse 12 all the way to verse 30. Philippians is in the New Testament after the Gospels, after a few to the right, uh, you'll run into Philippians. And the last time we looked at the beginning of Philippians, we uh, I, as, as all the time I do, a background. You know, we looked at maps, we looked at pictures, artifacts, um, the Ignatian Way, uh, Philipp, Philippi is Philippi. It's still there in modern-day Greece. Uh, the title or the tag to the, really the book is that joy can't be jailed. So the Apostle Paul was jailed, but his joy couldn't be jailed. Uh, and he, God used such a remarkable person to teach the rest of us um, this joy to, to have, and also uh, a true optimism. Actually, this morning, the title to the message is True Optimism. Kind of reminds me, well, what is true optimism versus somebody who's just kind of happy-go-lucky without a base or a foundation? Well, it reminds me of the father who had two boys, and one was a stone-cold pessimist. I mean, he just saw the negative in everything. And he had another son who was just an optimist, he could make lemonade out of lemons. So he figures, you know, one Christmas he's going to try to even it out because the one is so up there, so manic, and the other one is so bummed out all the time. So at midnight he decides, because when they wake up in the morning, he's trying to even the two boys out. So he goes quietly into the pessimist room and he quietly puts all these bags of toys and games and all this kind of stuff in his room and he fills it up. And he's like, oh, this is going to change him. Then he goes into the optimist room, and little by little, he starts just taking all this horse manure, and he puts horse manure all over his son's room. I mean, there's just piles everywhere. So the two kids wake up. The first thing the, the father hears is screaming and crying from the pessimist room. He says, no, this can't be. And he goes in there. He goes, son, what's wrong? He goes, so many directions, so many toys. I don't know where to put everything. My, my brothers and sisters are going to be jealous and my friends are going to be jealous. Oh, this is the worst Christmas ever. And he's crying his eyes out. And the father's scratching his head. Then he hears laughter and shrieks of joy from the other room. He goes, no, 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 this can't be. So he goes into the optimist room and the optimist is just flinging horse manure everywhere. And he goes, son, why are you so happy? He goes, because I know there's a pony in here somewhere. <laughs> so, well, the one son's not going to find the pony. And his foundation is really a shaky foundation, but he's, he's an optimistic kid. I submit to you the Apostle Paul. He's going to show us what true optimism is all about and understand his foundation is grounded in God. And this is where he finds his optimism and his joy. And he's going to share this treasure with us as we go through this letter. Now, I'm just going to break it up into three parts today. So as we jump in, starting with chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle Paul continues, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, and we would say bad things, negative things, 
have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard, the whole praetorium, and all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. That the latter, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So the first one we see, or the first point out of the three, is that is that the Apostle Paul's trials actually promote the gospel. And again, for those of you that might be new to even church or God's word, what is the gospel? The gospel is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Christ, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him, the son, the world might be saved. Again, he gave us free will. Most of us in this church have come to Christ at some point. Some still may not have, and maybe maybe don't even understand what it means to come to Christ, and hopefully we can help you out with that. But you could say that Paul was the quintessential optimist. He saw God's hand in everything. Now again, context, he's a prisoner of Rome. He's chained to a a Roman guard. Um, No doubt, as each time they changed the guards, he would start preaching to them and tell them about Jesus, certainly a captive audience. But he's being jailed for nothing more than just sharing the message of salvation. And I put a little asterisk there because it's sad today there's plenty of Christians, not in the United States, but overseas, that, oh, they, why are you in jail? You know, well, I have murder, you know, robbery. What about you? Well, I'm preaching the gospel. It's, well, it's illegal here. Right? A lot of countries where it is illegal. Amazing. Things happened to Paul. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, and he suffered personal pain. I mean, you, you have to try to put yourself in his shoes. You know, people have this romanticized picture of Paul but if we were to talk to Paul and he took off his shirt, you'd probably see all the whipping marks and the beating marks on his back. Maybe um, injuries from his face from taking beatings. Um, you know, so this is what we're dealing with. But you see, Paul didn't find joy in positive circumstances. He found joy in being a part of the plan of God. And today, I, I hate to say it, but over 2,000 years of Christianity, there's been some aberrant teachings. And today there are some believers that they couldn't find joy in anything but positive circumstances because that's what they hear from this type of preaching. Okay, So how is this a blessing to Paul? Well, he was blessed because the whole palace guard, the praetorian guard, the elites in Rome, the soldiers, you know, they get to hear the gospel. They guard the court officials. And the court officials, the magistrates, the judges, in order to prosecute Paul, this is something new, this whole finding the truth of the Messiah from the Old Testament. For us, it's, we've been dealing with this for thousands of years. We get it. We, could, you know, it's, we have so much information at our fingertips. But back then, this was something new that Jesus came, that he, he showed everybody this fulfillment of the law, this fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. So guess what? The court officials now had to, if they're going to prosecute him, the prosecutors, the judges, they have to start flipping through the Bible. What's he talking about? Isaiah 53, this, what, the suffering servant? Psalm 22, well, we better be versed in this if we're going to prosecute him. 
Because they're making accusations against him. And this is what he's saying. What, is, what, does, what do the prophecies say about the Messiah? Is he right? Isn't that amazing? So here you have Paul that has this prison ministry, court ministry, and military ministry rolled up in one that was handed to him. Now, I've got to be honest with you. If, if we go into great detail, I don't know if I'd be the first to raise my hand and say, oh yeah, I want that ministry. Some ministries aren't glamorous, and Paul certainly wasn't. But he, ha- he found joy in it. He really did. I mean, why share the gospel? <laughs> because the gospel is a way to tell the world about this free ticket to heaven. No strings attached. Jesus is the one who did all the heavy lifting. Again, for even those of us in the Northeast, it's hard for us to, you know, what's, what's the catch? What's the bottom line? What do you want? You know what I'm saying? Jesus said to his disciples, I've given it to you freely. Make sure you give it to everybody else freely as well. No strings attached. It's an amazing thing. And I think sadly too in Western Christianity that um, cultural Christianity has softened you know, this idea. You, well, you know, it's not that important to tell people about Jesus. It's not important to evangelize. It's kind of made some in Christianity too comfortable, too complacent with their faith. Oh, I just add my faith to my lifestyle. Well, the Apostle Paul said my faith was primary. The lifestyle came second. The lifestyle had to fit into what God's word said. Verse 14, a byproduct of his fearlessness was that other Christians who were wrongly accused, as this started to spread, and there was certain because of political and religious reasons, didn't want Christianity to spread. So they started locking people up. They started throwing Christians in jail over this stuff. Uh, And what happened was they became brave in the face of this threat. Uh, He was blessed by the fact that other Christians were like, wow, you know, Paul's handling it pretty good. The Holy Spirit's speaking to him. You know, God's doing a great work. I serve the same God. So there was a blessing in this that he was able to uh, bless them with his, the way he handled it. That's good leadership. You know, brothers and sisters, when we see or somebody sees us go through a trial, a difficult trial, and we handle it well, I'm not saying we handle them all well, not saying it when we first get bad news that we don't resort to the flesh, but I'm saying that if you're really grounded in the Lord, at some point you'll start to you get with your God, you start praying, and, you, and he starts to make sense of this whole thing that we're going through. And maybe somebody that we're discipling, maybe somebody younger, they look at that, and they, it gives them a boost of confidence because you're handling it well. Now, as I share this next thing, <clears throat> sometimes in my house I have to ask permission to share certain things from the pulpit. My wife's looking at me. No, it's not you this time, sweetheart. Uh, so I went to my son and I said, I want to say this. He's like, yeah, go ahead and say it. When my son was younger, he had a lot of fears. And I had this little thing that I would say with him, you know, whether the power went out or something was happening or there was some situation. And I would say, son, I said, if daddy's not afraid, you shouldn't be afraid. So over time, I would say to him, I would have him memorize that. And I'd say, what's the rule? He says, you don't look afraid, I should be okay. Because even if I was afraid as a leader, it's not my role to show him that fear in my home. You see what I'm saying? So um, it's just the, you can take these principles and add them to your life very easily in your everyday life, in your everyday, what might appear to be mundane lives. See what I'm saying? And verse 15 through 17, this is a strange phenomenon in that some preached the gospel with less than ideal motives. Uh, some were competing with Paul. It's, it's, listen, in, in the body of Christ, 
unfortunately, because, listen, we're all sinners. There's going to be some things that are unusual. There's going to be some people that really don't, um, you know, that they just do things with the wrong motives. And it was no different here with the Apostle Paul and these people who um, either wanted to surpass Paul, saw him as a threat, were competing against him. You know, A.W. Tozer basically wrote, I was going to read it. He's like, I'm not here to compete with anybody. I'm just here to do what God has called me to do in my church, big or small. This is what God has called me to do, right? Verse 16, even crazier, some tried, he says, to add affliction to his bonds. So to hurt Paul while Paul was in in prison. The Philippians came to encourage him. Others were happy that he was there. It's so strange. And I can tell you, as, uh, especially when you're in leadership, I've experienced this over the years too. You know, you tell somebody the truth. You share the gospel. You, you know, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and um, maybe it's not the answer they wanted. Maybe it's not what, what they thought it was going to turn out to be, and they turn on you. We're in a church. I mean, this is weird. We're Christians. We serve the same God. And we can disagree. It's okay. But, you know, John Wesley and George, Whit- George Whitfield, if you study them, they had very different doctrinal beliefs. But they loved and respected each other, and some tried to uh, interview Whitfield or Wesley and try to drive a wedge between them, and they would not let that happen. I believe one leaned more Calvinist, one leaned more Arminianist, uh, but they loved each other, they loved the gospel, they preached the gospel, and they weren't in competition with each other, although potsters, that's what I call them around, tried to do that. Okay, You know what I love about the Bible? It's so frank, it's so candid. It doesn't dance around subjects. It's right there. And you can say, well, gee, yeah, I'm going through this in my own life. And that's the beauty of the application phase of the Scripture. You can take it home with you. Or you can think about what happened last week and say, yeah, this is definitely front and center in my life right now. Nevertheless, the gospel spreads. And again, he said, there were those that preached it out of good intentions. They preached it genuinely. Again, it's, it's not, uh, is it unusual to see in churches we're human beings? Even in leadership, people don't disagree. Sometimes one person, it's a disagreement. And one person leaves and starts another ministry. And, and you know, the ministries now multiply because people are leaving churches and going out and starting new works. Um, but the end result is, and hopefully they reconcile at some point, I've seen this happen as well, and the end result is a multiplication of God's word in different venues. Uh, so Paul was, again, very optimistic about this and he wasn't going to allow the naysayers to make him feel bad while he's languishing in prison. And he also says in verse 17, the gospel is to be preached, but it's also to be defended. <clears throat> Not that the gospel is weak. It's, it's, it's an awesome, it's very simple. You don't have to be educated. And actually when Jesus preached this, most of the people were not educated. So 2,000 years later, we live in New Jersey and Northeast and in this area, and most people have some type of degree in something. Different culture back then. Very simple message. You, you, couldn't, you didn't even have to know how to read or write, but you could understand how to get to heaven. That's beautiful. You know, today we live in, even in Western culture, is politicians, celebrities, like, it's just a whole elitist class. Hey, we're up here, you're down there. You know, Jesus made it simple so that the poorest of the poor, the most uneducated, could understand it. So this gospel was a simple gospel, but it was defended, apologia in the Greek, right? Which you would, you know, because we live in a society filled with lies, right? Anybody could start a website, put something on there, just make stuff up. 
We see that uh, people in the media aren't very scrupulous. Then when they make a mistake, they, it's like a real small print on page 17 somewhere. Most people don't even see it. Some don't even admit to their mistakes. But we defend the gospel in that we look, we strive for the truth. God is truth. And what we want to do is we want to get the truth out to society. So that's where the defended part comes from. Somebody asks me, doesn't mean I'm going to have all the answers. Well, defend your faith. Well, what about this? Well, what about evolution? It's not a problem. We can talk. We can have that discussion. I'm defending the gospel. Because what you've been taught, maybe in, in the institutions and in academia today, I went to Rutgers for four years. I went to a good school, and they had them there too. They had these academia, these academics who just hate the gospel. And they'll just throw everything out at you. Malign Christians sitting in their classes. Um, it's, it's, unfortunately, it's common. Do we know how to defend our faith? As Paul said, that's one of my responsibilities. It's one of your responsibilities. We could teach our kids a lot of things. We could want our kids to be a lot of things, but what we really should want them is when they go out into the world to defend their faith, to hold on to something so precious and not let anyone manipulate or cajole or humiliate them into giving that up. Um, so verse 18, he says, nonetheless, or basically either way, Christ is, Christ is preached. And I feel the same way. There's actually a church a block from us. In Jamesburg, there's a lot of churches. I don't look at that as competition. I don't look at that as a threat. I look at that as a good thing. As long as it's not some cult or weird doctrine, good. The more works, the better, as long as they're solid. You go to Middle Eastern countries and Middle Eastern Christians, when they find another Christian, hug each other, rejoice. And I know because we have, we're supporting missionaries that go to the Middle East. And they're, they're, because it's not like here. You walk down the street, you find another Christian. They're, they're being persecuted, you know? So it's just this thing, this bond. Wow, you're a Christian too? Oh, thank God. I was really struggling. I think God put you in my path. It's pretty cool. Um, we, we looked at some of the things that we're doing in our church. I talked about the Trenton Homeless, the Sandy Outreaches, Louisiana. We're actually now, um, and I'll, I'll give you more details as it unfolds, we're helping a church in the Dominican Republic. Um, we had a couple from this church that were on vacation. And they somehow run into this situation and they, they go to this church and they're like, you know what, they're, they're struggling financially and they got dirt floors and, you know, so they appealed to me, they came to me and I'm like, oh. they showed me pictures. And they were on vacation. They kind of put their vacation on hold to tour this church to know, get to know the pastor and the people. So they're like, would you, would we? I'm like, yes, we will. And we, we, we would. <laughs> so I've been in contact with him and, um, you know, it's, there was some challenges with, getting the finances down there and stuff. But I said, when you get everything squared, let me know so I can pass it on to our body that we have, a, we have an arm going out to the Dominican Republic. Yeah, pretty amazing. And it's, it's, as Americans, sometimes we go out of this country and we see, wow, this is really poverty. A lot of safety nets in the United States. In a lot of other countries, there's not. And you know what's amazing? Sometimes I find in the poorest countries, people have so much joy. They have very little but, but God to them is everything. And they really have to trust in him. It's, it's an amazing thing. Verse 19, as we continue, he says, For I know that this will turn out for my salvation. That word can also be translated for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. 
for me, or for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So the second out of the three is that Paul's trials promote the Lord's exaltation, promote the Lord's glorification. Again, in bad circumstances. Verse 19 and 20. Let's talk about shame for a moment. Society is a funny thing. Society has no shame when it comes to perversion, pornography, but society is ashamed of the gospel. And sometimes, you know, it's really like mind control or brainwashing. You watch the, the TV. Like I said, when I was a kid, they used to have bumper stickers that said, kill your TV. And I'm not telling you to go home and take a 45 and put a round in it, but I am saying that it can be just, wa- it's a form of brain, uh, brainwashing is really what it is. So we shouldn't feel ashamed about these things, but we should be ashamed about the gospel and sharing our faith. You know what I'm saying? Look at Tim Tebow, and he did simple things. He wasn't a glory hound, and he just got so much there always on him just because he, he shares his faith, and I think he does it in a humble way. And just to, just to side, sidetrack for a minute, you know, there's this big discussion now of, you know, we knew this because of what the Bible says, but that pornography is destroying families. And it's indiscriminate. It's like a drug. It actually affects the same parts of the brain that it, uh, you know, substance abuse does. It has a dopamine effect and all that kind of stuff. And um, so there's this discussion. And, and sometimes I'm watching these debates and I'm seeing young women defending pornography. And I'm like, I'm thinking, honey, you are so deceived. Because young women are the biggest victims of this, whether they're involved in it or whether they're married to somebody who's struggling with it. They're the ones who are the biggest victims. But hey, as, as society, we, we, we don't have shame about those things. But we do have shame, and it's not us as the church, but society is ashamed of the gospel. Very sad. And I think sometimes, well, I don't think, I've seen it. Sometimes Christians are intimidated, they're frightened, they're, they become ashamed because they get abused from their peer group or maybe Christians somehow ends up in the media spotlight and they just harassed. And you, you have this feeling. Paul's saying, listen, I'm in prison for preaching the truth. Now, don't get, let's, let's understand this. Prison's not fun for anybody. But if you were in Mamertine prison, if you were in the Roman prison, it was even less fun. Uh, very little, if no amenities. And here's Paul. He's an educated man. He's going somewhere in the world, studied under the feet of Gamaliel. Now he's spending a lot of his time in prison. You know, and probably the devil's whispering in his ear saying, well, look what, God, look what happens when you follow God. You had the world at your fingertips. Brothers and sisters, we hear this sometimes. The devil tries to lie to us. Look what you had in the world. Now you become a Christian and now your problems start. Who is this God? Is he really out for your best interest? He said the same thing to Eve in the garden. It's the same lie recycled and reformulated. But he's saying, I'm in prison and who knows? Only God knows what's going to happen, but I'm not going to allow it to make me deny my Lord. I'm not going to allow myself to be ashamed of what I'm doing. He, he really is an inspiration. Verse 14, Paul knew, he says, that 
at least this time, that it would turn out for his salvation, like I said, also deliverance. He was going to be delivered. He knew that the Lord was in control. He knew as we go through this that the prayers of the saints would be helpful. He knew that the Spirit of Christ was going to strengthen him and minister to his needs, emotionally, physical, and what have you. But it did turn out this time that he gets released, but we know later he's, he's reaccused, reincarcerated, and he's also executed under Nero. But that's not this time. That's not this time. He says this, that Christ is magnified. Paul says, Christ is magnified in my body. Paul has said that we need to be, as Christians, a living sacrifice. That's it, a living sacrifice. He gave his body, his mind, his spirit for the cause of Christ, regardless of what the Lord decided. He could either become a martyr and give his body, as he says, to that cause, or if the Lord allowed situations for them to be freed, especially the first time, he also would give his body, if they didn't take his life, he would give his body for the service of Christ. His legs, his feet, his lips, his hands. He would be walking from town to town sharing the gospel. Paul was saying, my body is reserved for Jesus Christ. One way or the other. One way or the other. See, when we truly serve God, when we truly serve God, let me say truly, our ambitions and our plans have to be tempered with prayer the scripture, and what is God's will for my life. You know, as Christians, our life is not our own. Well, you have free will. You can do whatever you want. I'm not here to tell you otherwise. But I'm telling you according to the scripture. Even James says, a person says, I'm going to go to this town. I'm going to do business. We make plans, even as Christians, all the time. But is God part of that? You know? I can tell you that when you're a believer, there's going to be times if you're really sold out for Christ that he's going to, you know, he's going to talk to you and, and say, listen, there's that person in the hospital waiting room. I know you, had, you have a busy schedule, but I want you to talk to that person. Well, there'll be times that that happens. Verses 21 through 24, Paul is saying, basically in Christ, I'm a winner no matter what happens. So if I lose my case and get the death sentence, I go right to be with the Lord. I want to tag this with, or I want to attach it to 2 Corinthians 5, 8, where he says, the Apostle Paul, absent from the body is present with the Lord. In other words, when I die, I go right to be with, in heaven. Now, there are some doctrines, and it's not one, and it's not one denomination. There's several of them, and I don't know why men have to muddle, meddle in the Bible why they have to start adding weird stuff that just makes things confusing, and people get confused. So there's one doctrine that says it's the doctrine of soul sleep. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, others kind of follow this. Basically, when you die, you're in like this state of animation. It's almost like cryogenics. You know, you're just kind of floating, and, and at a certain time, God will revive you. That's not what the Scripture says. Now, I come from Catholicism, and they taught purgatory. It's another thing. One's hot, one's cold. You know what I'm saying? In purgatory, you're, you're burning, and somebody's got to pray you out or light candles, and it's not what Paul says. He says, when you die, you go right to be with the Lord. He didn't say, um, I, gotta, I have to go through the sauna first, and then I'm going to go be with the Lord. He said, I go right to be with the Lord. That's very clear. Um, that's something that we have to understand. Also, he's saying, basically, if he lives, what, what is he going to get to do? He's going to get to minister to the Philippians and others that he's you know, led to Christ. He's saying, it's for your benefit. I get to minister to other believers. And he held them equally as positive. You know? And that's true for any Christian. 
Whatever happens to us, we're winners. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Christ has promised us everlasting life. It doesn't get any better than that. You know, we look at our lives, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. Eternity is, there's not enough zeros. It just keeps going. And then that fine point of our life becomes infinitesimal, not even to be seen again. You ever go through something traumatic and 20, 30, 40 years later you look back and you're like, it kind of loses its power over you? Maybe it's a, it's a, hard, a hard thing or um, a rough experience, but over time you're so far removed from it and it never happens again that it, it takes the power out of it. So it's the same thing with eternity. We're going to be with the Lord for eternity. What we suffer here, the Apostle Paul says, a, is a momentary light affliction. That's how he looked at it. Some will preach today, well, if you're not healthy all the time and you're not wealthy all the time, you're a loser or you don't have enough faith, which doesn't jive with Scripture. You know, joy is irrespective of circumstances. Just the, again, I, I just, I like to study people and over the years it's kind of a thing I do on the side. I'm interested in behaviorism and, you know, how people react and why they react and, and coping mechanisms of the body and the mind. But if you look at a study of abused or bullied children, a lot of them fantasize about A, being away from the situation and B, being superheroes. It takes the, it's a coping mechanism. It takes the pain out of the present. You know, you, adults that I've dealt with struggling with substance abuse, uh, getting high will take their mind off of the present. Or there might be some root that's never been dealt with. And with some addicts, when you remove the root, this horrible root, and you can pull it out by its roots, the person starts to get better. And they don't have that craving as much. And over time, they, they, you know, they do well. They become very successful. But as children of God, we have a coping mechanism too. Hebrews tells us that we can boldly come before the throne of grace anytime to receive mercy and grace. That's impressive. So anything on the earth is temporary. Fantasies, substance abuse, whatever. As believers, and Paul really mastered this, he could just go before the throne of grace. That's amazing. Revelation 4, the, the living creatures and the angels and the sea of glass and the multiple colors. It's an amazing... I never forget that. I taught Revelation. 4 to me was fascinating. And, and that's just in black and white words on a page. We don't know what it's like, and we won't know until we get there. But it's going to be much more marvelous than anybody could ever express. So we can go before that throne of grace, God's throne room. We're his children. And Paul had the ability to do it on a regular basis. It changed his attitude. It changed his feelings that he might have been currently dealing with. Don't think that Paul was a superman. Don't think that he didn't get discouraged. He's very honest about in his letters about what he's dealt with. The pain, the abandonment, the suffering. He's just like you and I. But he, he just really tapped into the Lord. And the Lord is he, it's available for, for all of us. Verse 22, he speaks about... He speaks about the fruit of his labor if he was to stay with the Christians and not be executed by the Romans. Okay, And this is something that John 15, all Christians, we should be bearing fruit. That's an indicator of our closeness with Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches, that relationship. And with a, a healthy vine and branches, in horticulture it produces fruit. Good, healthy fruit. Uh, in the Christian walk, the closeness between us and our Lord and Savior produces spiritual fruit. 
So Paul's fruit was spreading the gospel, saving, you know, the gospel saving souls, and also discipling people. 25 and 26, Paul basically says, you know, I want to be here for your progress. If I'm going to be here, I want to be here for your progress and your joy of faith, verse 25. Right? And that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. You know, Paul had this special relationship with churches that he founded. And I've got to tell you, I think there's enough discouraging things when we turn on the TV, sometimes when we go to work, sometimes even when we might be in family situations, peer groups, and the encouragement is to be with somebody who maybe is mentoring you or who led you to the Lord or whatever, and they're a source of encouragement, you know? I just say this, whether it's social media or TV, sometimes it can, it can make you just mad, just looking at all the hate and the anger and the, the division in our country. And, and I just say, step away from the table. <laughs> step away from the computer. Put the mouse down, okay? And uh, go to the Lord. It's what he's there for. And go to people who will encourage you and not discourage you. You know, Paul could have said, he could have said, you know, I did so much for you people. How about everybody getting a collection? How about everybody going to the, the Roman uh, court? How about everybody making a lot of noise? Free me. I don't want to be here anymore. He didn't say any of that ever. He was, even in his time of trial, he was always still other-centered. I speak about a, a man who was a mentor to me, and gee, now it's got to be like 15 years he passed away, he got cancer, died an untimely death. And here, this guy, the, the night he passed, it's like he knew. They gave him this, I still remember it, like it's, in, it's burned in my mind. This, he gave him this huge room, this hospital room, and he had like 25 people there. And the dude was not panicking at all. He actually said, I want to pray. And one by one, he prayed for every person in that room. This is the night that he died of cancer. That's remarkable. See, that's, that, that actually was the turning point for me to say, I mean, I was barely, I was pretty young in the faith, and uh, it was a huge turning point for me to get into ministry. It, it just had a, an incredible positive effect on me, the unselfishness of this person. And, you know, those, those Christians are the real deal. Verse 27, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs. That you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Which is to them a proof of perdition or their perdition. But to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So the third, three out of three, is Paul ends with an exhortation to the afflicted, to others going through difficult situations. A few things. Number one, continue to live a lifestyle fitting for Christians. Behavior and character is important. Again, I, I've noticed in my life, when I wasn't doing the right thing, that People will only listen to your words when your behavior and your character are, are a support system for those words. Right? People want to see, are you real? Or are you just throwing words at me? Or are you just punching a clock? In some denominations, some religions, they actually have to punch a clock. I mean, they have to put in time going to people's doors. They have to put names down. 
They have to say, look, I did something. That's not true Christianity. It's, it's natural. It's your lifestyle. And people see that you're, you're living it, so they're, they're listening. They want to know. So that, that lifestyle and that character keep striving to be like Christ. Striving can be negative when we're striving for something and we just can't attain it. But strive to be like Christ is a positive thing because he's, he's the standard. And do it with one mind. Strengthen Christian, Christian unity. Every church should be like this. They should be unified. One of the biggest problems with the Corinthian church they rebuked them for was their divisiveness. They were so divided. They had so many factions. And that was just in one geographical area. Second point he says, verse 28, don't be terrified of your adversary. Don't let the enemies of God have power over your mind. And this really, I tell you what, this is, this is something that's really lived out in communist countries and uh, staunch Islamic uh, countries where Christianity is illegal. Um, you know, knowing Jesus said, don't fear the one that can just kill the body. Fear the one that can kill the body and then take the soul and, and cast it into hell. And it's, it's an amazing thing when somebody tries to bully you or tries to put you in fear. It's like they receive gratifi- a sick gratification from it that you show them, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm not moved. And it's, it's, it, it, sometimes, it, and he was saying it, it, it unnerves them. But what it shows is that you have a power greater than their power to take your body or take your freedom. You know? Um, that's, that's pretty impressive. It's proof of their perdition if they don't repent. Third thing, verse 29, is considered an honor to suffer or sacrifice on account of Christ. So the Apostle Paul was in prison. Most likely, unless things change drastically, and there are some interesting cases in the Supreme Court where it could change. And I know some of you come from other countries that you've seen these types of things. You've come back and forth from other countries. Um, Most likely, we won't be jailed for our faith. That could change. However, we may sacrifice something else. We may suffer in the terms of friendships. You know, I had friends, a lot of friends in the beginning. Um, I became a Christian. I still have my good friends. It's amazing. They accepted me even though I became a Christian. That's a true friend. You know, they just accept you for who you are. Um, Others, I didn't want them not to be my friends anymore, but it just was a natural progression of them being irritated by Jesus, the Bible, you know, that kind of stuff. So we may sacrifice friends, sacrifice a reputation, income, etc., financial opportunities. Again, to suffer for Christ, what does a lot of Western Christianity preach? God wants you to be successful, he wants you to be healthy, he wants, you know, it's like we just find this, this technique to manipulate God and to say things over and over, and it's like you want what he has. You don't necessarily want him, but you want his stuff. Give me more, give me more, give me more. That's not what Paul's saying. He says, consider it an honor to suffer for Christ. Verse 30. Paul suffered, but he also showed a good example on how to handle it. And that's where we're going to leave off this morning. It is a privilege to suffer for Christ. What it shows is that we're in the spiritual battle. Not necessarily with real-life mortars and missiles and bullets, but we're in the spiritual battlefield. When we suffer for Christ, when we're abused for Christ, when... You know, we're deprived because we're Christians or because others take advantage of us because we're Christians. Consider that an honor because it shows that you're, you're, you're in the, the war. You're in the battle. You're taking on spiritual injuries. You have a role. 
Sometimes there are Christians that kind of gerrymander their life. You know, they, they avoid every landmine, every situation, because they really, it's this war between wanting to be a Christian, but also wanting everything they can get in this world. And they're, they're not even in the battle. They're sitting on the sidelines watching everybody else get blown up. And I say that in a, a figurative way. We trust God. We know all things are in His hand. We relax our mind and we know that whatever circumstance we're in, that He can use it for His glory. You know, Pastor Paul showed this video. I imagine he's going to show it again at the night of worship. He showed it when he preached last Sunday. It was great. It showed the lights and the music and worship. And he says, you're going to see people perform. You're going to see this. And he says, but it's not about them. You know, you're going to be re responding, reacting, but it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And some people do that. They'll, they'll laud somebody in ministry, a pastor or somebody in some type of ministry. It's all about this person. You know what? No, it isn't. It's all about Jesus. Can I tell you something? I don't want it to be all about me because that puts, first of all, it's sinful. Number two, it puts a lot of pressure on me to perform. You know what I'm saying? I'm just here doing what God has given me a gift to do. And you all have gifts. And we all use them together to glorify the Lord. And not one person stands out. Amen? All right. I've got to be straight up with you. I'm encouraged when I see this being played out in the persecuted church in the Middle East. And I read these things. Sometimes I get angry because I want to help them. I get so angry. But then I also, I'm like, wow, how impressive. These are real Christians. I do ask my wife. I pray daily for the persecuted church. And you know what I also pray for? It's not just Christians. I pray for persecuted peoples, like the Yazidis in um, Syria and uh, Iraq. They're, not all of them are Christians, but they're being abused by ISIS. My heart goes out to them. It's not just for Christians. It's for anybody who's going through that. But just their example of courage and not bending and not... Yeah, it's amazing. So my question to you is, as we close, as we go through this letter, who's ready? Who's ready for true optimism? Not like the boy with the horse manure looking for the pony. But who's ready for some true optimism, some true joy as we go through this letter? Actually, in, um, different commentators label the book differently. I've seen the book, like, Be Joyful. That was the whole thing about Philippians. And it wasn't joyful because Paul was on top of the world. It, was, it, it has more power because he was joyful when he was losing everything in the world. But they couldn't take his faith. They couldn't take the gospel. They couldn't take the salvation from him. They couldn't take his joy Right? You ever meet people that they just, it's, it's a control thing. They just want to make you upset. They, want to, they, they look at it as a badge of honor to steal your joy. And Paul was like, I am not going to let that happen. So join me as we go through the next month or two, as we go through this letter, and um, we continue looking at optimism and joy through the book of Philippians. Let's pray. You've been listening to to every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, 
and may God bless you.